What does mission history teach us about Christian-Muslim relations? Deanna Womack is an ordained Presbyterian minister and the first assistant professor of history of religions and multi-faith relations at Emory's Candler School of Theology. She serves as faculty and directs public programming for the school's leadership and multi-faith program. We talk in this episode about her forthcoming book entitled Protestants, Gender, and the Arab Renaissance in Late Ottoman Syria. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. So you have been studying and writing about the history of mission, uh, in particular Protestant mission in Syria and modern-day Lebanon. Uh, and you're looking at the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, what would now be called the Nahda or the Arab Awakening. Uh, so what piqued your interest in this subject? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I started studying specifically mission history and world Christianity um, as a PhD student at Princeton Theological Seminary. And just to clarify, uh, the time period that I'm looking at, um, which is called the Nahda, um, begins maybe a bit earlier in the 19th century and continues into the early 20th century. So the book that I wrote um, based on my dissertation starts in 1860 and ends in 1915 with World War I. And um, what drew me to this era well, were a number of things. Um, within my interest in the study of religion in the Middle East. But one was that the Nahda or the Arab Renaissance was really a time of political, cultural, and I also argue religious shifts in Ottoman Syria, um, which is present day Syria and Lebanon. And so it was part of the Ottoman Empire until World War I. Um, so, so one thing, it was a really, um, a really uh, intense time of cultural change and that has drawn a lot of scholarship um, to that particular period. And you really can't understand the modern Middle East without understanding those cultural and political movements. And then secondly, it was also a period of interreligious and cross-cultural contact. And so um, those who were pioneers of the Nahda in Syria were Christians of all different denominations and Muslims and Jews, all of whom spoke and wrote in Arabic. And then you have American missionaries and other missionaries coming in and interacting with the pioneers of the Nahda. And so that provides a really interesting backdrop for a study of the period. Well, and that's interesting because normally uh, we think of pluralism as a relatively modern phenomenon. Um, mm -hmm. But what you're describing sounds really uh, familiar in terms of what we navigate in our North American religious landscape. Is that fair? Yes, I would say, I think in the North American landscape, we're talking about religious pluralism as we're noticing our society becoming more diverse. But in the Middle East, religious plurality is simply a way of life and in a way that it, it didn't even have to be named in this period. Um, we didn't think about, you know, people weren't talking about interreligious dialogue as we do today. And because it's just something that happened naturally because people of different faiths live next door to each other. Yeah, I wonder if that's something we'll begin to see uh, intergenerationally. Um, Interreligious dialogue seems like something older generations of Americans talk mm -hmm. about, uh, but maybe younger folks won't talk about it in the same way. Uh, time will yeah. tell. Right. I think that could be an important and helpful shift where it's not something we have to learn how to do. It's something that we grow up doing or we just grow up assuming that not everyone is like us and, and that's the way that the world is. So you're also looking at this time period from the perspective of women's contributions. Uh, how did you make that choice? And uh, what's helpful about that unique vantage point? Mm -hmm. 
Yes. So um, particularly in the book, I've um, used the lens of gender to try and open up some uh, some questions about this history that hadn't previously been answered. But when I set out to do the research, I wasn't actually, I was thinking about the Nahda, and I wasn't really thinking about gender or women's roles in the Protestant church, because the previous scholarship, at least the books that had been produced up to that time um, period, hadn't focused much on gender. I didn't see signs that there were source materials written by women, which is really essential when you're doing research on the 19th century and you can't go back and interview people. You have to find things that are written. And so I was very pleasantly surprised and delighted um, when I started researching at the Library of the Near East School of Theology in Beirut and found articles um, written by women who were journalists and activists um, in the Arab Renaissance. And these happened to be Syrian Protestants people living in Beirut and, and around that area. And so that helped me focus more on the fact that women were actually doing things. And we, we assume that they weren't um, because their history hasn't been written. And so I started to dig more deeply and found not only were women um, writing articles, they were also um, preaching, at least in informal settings. They were working as Bible women, which is another way of saying women evangelists. Um, so they were somewhat the counterparts of, of Arab Protestant men who were ordained um, to church ministry. And so I, I think much of the history has been recorded um, for, and told from a male perspective. And um, this is true in mission history in general. There's been a movement, you know, since the 1980s, especially to focus on um, women in, in missionary history. And we've realized that the missionary movement by the early 20th century was actually a majority women's movement. And so that change, it's a paradigm shift in the way that we're writing and thinking about history. Um, and so I, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to find source materials about women, um, not only women missionaries, but particularly women in the Arab churches um, in, in Ottoman Syria. And, and that seemed worthwhile to investigate a bit further. Is there one who stood out to you as uh, especially unique or exceptional? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess I would say, too, there's one woman named... Um, um, Salma Bader, who actually immigrated to the United States and lived in New York City um, for a while. But early, um, early on, she was not only a Bible woman, but she actually wrote a sermon and published it in an Arab Protestant magazine. And that really sort of clued me into the fact that, um, that women are preaching in spaces. This was a sermon that was given for a religious gathering of young people, so it wasn't necessarily in a church. Um, but that women... Um, in the Middle East are preaching in spaces um, in in sort of uh, have carved out spaces for preaching and evangelism at a time when Arab women weren't ordained and Presbyterian missionary women who were in the region um, weren't ordained. And so for me, I would I guess I would say Salma Badr is a connection point between she had actually worked as a Bible woman um, after giving that sermon. And so and most Bible women actually didn't write and publish things. And so she's one person who was very highly educated and was able to be an evangelist as a Bible woman, but also to write and to preach. And she kind of connects the two groups of women that I'm looking at, those who were writers and activists and really public figures and intellectuals, and those who were Bible women kind of working behind the scenes and who unfortunately were, were often unnamed in missionary reports. And so we don't know much about what they were doing. You say that the history of mission is not just located in ascending and receiving society, uh, but it's actually much more complex and dynamic. 
Can you explain exactly what that means and what the implications might be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's really important as um, we're trying to shift mission history and and actually shift into the study of world Christianity, which to me implies a more mutual sort of approach. Um, but Eurocentric patterns of um, of writing about mission history have focused really on the senders, the the American or European societies that sent missionaries, and the missionaries are bringing something to a receiving society that needs something. Um, but actually, neither the senders nor the receivers, if we even want to use that language, neither one is monolithic. And so missionaries were very diverse. The people in Syria that missionaries encountered were very diverse. Um, and then I also find that in Syria, missionaries and local Christians and Muslims became deeply enmeshed in each other's lives in different ways. And they changed each other and changed Syrian society in the process. And so it wasn't about one person doing something to change another person, but it was a mutual encounter um, in which missionaries were often surprised and in which um, local Christians and even local Muslims were really the ones that had the agency to change and, and to um to write history in a different way. And so I'd say all history is about mutual encounters, um, but particularly mission history is, even if there were power imbalances. And so the standard narrative that's told by American missionaries and their early historians that wrote about missions um, really tend to obscure these complexities. I would say history is made together um, and it's not just made by the ones who write history. And so that's why um, I really tried to to incorporate Syrian Protestant voices in this uh, in the history that I was writing. That's fascinating. Uh, again, I'm going to push you for a particular story uh, to match a face with a concept. Um, is there one example of that kind of uh, mutual mm-hmm. transformation that happens between a missionary party and a so to speak uh, receiving party? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, like I said, missionaries are are not monolithic, and so there are those who who seemed to not have been very changed by the encounter, or at least in what they wrote home, which, you know, they had to justify the work that they were doing. Um, They seemed really, really set in the ways, um, you know, that that they uh, had from the very beginning. Um, But one particular missionary um, who is a missionary doctor named Cornelius Van Dyke um, really stands out in this history. And a scholar named Uta Zoiga um, uh, in Europe, a German scholar, has written a lot more about this. But he, um, he really, I think, was changed by Arab culture. He became uh, completely fluent in spoken Arabic as well as um, written Arabic. He was the one that worked um, most closely on the, the Protestant um, Arabic translation of the Bible. And he did so working with Arab Christians as well as Arab Muslims to kind of get the the syntax and the grammar of the Bible translation right. And so he was somebody who personally was changed in the way that he thought and the way that he operated on the ground, even in the the sort of clothing that he wore, if you look at pictures of him. And and I can say that also not just from, from what he wrote and what scholars have said, but from the way that Syrians, both Christians and Muslims, talked about him, that he was somebody who appreciated Arab culture for what it was and wasn't completely trying to change it into some sort of westernized version of of Arab culture. And so I think that uh, he was open to relationships with Arabs and and he as a missionary was changed. And I think also because of that openness, um, many in the Syrian Protestant community especially found him to be their advocate and found him to be a partner, um, even when some other missionaries were trying to impose more westernized notions of what church should look like. 
And what role does language play in all of this? I mean, what happens when literacy is increased through these kinds of interactions? How does that play out uh, and relate to mission history? Yes. So especially for Protestants, language and literacy is central, um, not only to mission strategy, but to Protestant theology. So if the Protestant Reformation is about uh, making vernacular Bibles available to people and it's Bible study in your own language and preaching in your own language, um, this was central for the Protestant missionary enterprise around the globe in the beginning in the 19th century. And so everywhere that missionaries went, they began to open um, presses that would be um, publishing in the vernacular language. And the aim really was so that they could translate and then print and distribute the Bible in that particular language. Um, and so missionaries did that in um, in Syria, founding the first Arabic press in the 1830s. And then it was in 1866 that the full translation of the Arabic Bible was produced there. I mean, so what missionaries brought actually um, was the um, the Roman Catholic translation of, of the Bible into Arabic. And so there's kind of a, there's a denominational clash here in deciding whose Bible is better. And, um, and so the Bible was avail- available in Arabic. And, and to some extent, it was read by those who were literate um, and by those who were scholars. But what the Protestants tried to do is make it available to the masses. And, and that probably they exaggerated their, um, their successes in doing so in comparison to what was already there. Um, but, uh, but I think that Bible has also made a really big impact on the Protestant community and, and on the wider communities, because it meant that then, um, Catholic communities in the Middle East were also thinking about Bible translation and distribution of Bibles and Greek Orthodox communities were thinking about their translation, their Arabic translation, um, of the Bible. And so, and the same thing happened in schools because in order to read the Bible, you need to be literate. And so Protestants, um, had to had to found schools in order to to teach people how to read and so education was sort of to support the spread of the gospel and then catholic schools and greek orthodox schools emerged and so and um, whether it was healthy or unhealthy competition at times you see beirut especially becoming a place um, where where private christian schools are multiplying and literacy is really increasing and because of this missionary focus on on having the bible available in um, in the arabic language and you've actually lived in Lebanon. You lived and taught there. Um, when you were there, did you see ramifications of mission history, uh, these things that you've been studying and writing mm-hmm. about? Um, yes. Yeah, so my period of study ends in, in 1915, and a lot has happened in the Middle East um, since then. Um, but I would say, particularly in Lebanon, many of the schools and churches that originated with the work of American missionaries and their Ottoman Syrian partners in the 19th century are still there today. Um, that's very different from other parts of the Middle East. For example, in Egypt, all the missionary schools were nationalized in the mid-20th century. Um, but in Lebanon, that legacy is very much a part of how the educational system works. And many people send their children um, to Christian schools, whether they're Christian or not. And so I also found um, I found that religious diversity is the norm there, um, even in these schools that are um, are run by Christians. Although sectarian divisions can definitely flare up, um, I found that Christians and Muslims, at least on the ground in their day-to-day life, and people from multiple traditions and denominations live and learn alongside each other. Um, and I also saw there that that Arab Christians are there, which is, is something that people don't always know, that there is a historical presence of Arab uh, Christians in the Middle East, and they're part of the larger um, they're part of world Christianity. And so I think for, 
for church members in the U.S. Um, to know that that uh, we have fellow Christians in the Arab world, and also for scholars, especially those who study world Christianity, I found that Arab Christianity has often been marginalized um, within those groups because it is it is a, a smaller um, it is a minority within uh, within world Christianity that sometimes Arab Christians are neglected, and so it's not just a part of history, but it's actually part of contemporary life there. Is there a particular type of collaboration that you find helpful? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think um, I think despite um, troublesome news stories and Islamophobic rhetoric that we do here on a daily basis, um, there are many places in the United States where interreligious dialogue is happening, either intentionally or because um, you know, children are going to school together, people are working alongside each other. And so, I mean, I could give you a long list of of interfaith organizations. Um, even in Atlanta, where I live, um, there are a number of new initiatives where um, not just Christians and Muslims, but people of our, all faiths are coming together and having, you know, there's a possibility to collaborate and to learn and to engage with each other in a way that um, I mean, probably didn't even happen 10 years ago, but certainly um, wasn't happening uh, in the 19th century um, in the ways that it was happening in, in Syria and Lebanon. There's a movement known as Scriptural Reasoning that was founded um, by Peter Oakes and others in the 1990s um, that's still growing. And the model there is that everybody comes with their own religious text and you kind of grapple with it and you even um, debate and argument can be part of it in order to grow closer to each other and to learn um, through those texts. So that's one sort of um, very focused way of engaging um, theologically and through scriptural interpretation. Um, at Candler School of Theology, where I teach, I also direct the Leadership and Multi-Faith Program, or LAMP, and it's less about theological engagement and more about bringing um, uh, diverse people together to, uh, for conversations on how we live in a multi-faith society. And so we do that by focusing on topics um, like refugee resettlement and immigration, or intersections between science and religion um, that may bring people who are not necessarily part of formal interfaith movements. Um, that term interfaith, I think, is confusing for some people. And so, so we're looking sort of to broaden um, the group of people who are talking about what it means to live in um, our multi-faith society in the U.S. today and what sorts of things can we, um, can, what sort of common ground can we find and what sort of um, common values will, will allow for collaboration. And so um, the LAMP program is another way that we've done that here in Atlanta. I love thinking about what our life could look like together in that regard. Shifting gears here, uh, what kinds of implications should be drawn about the work of contemporary congregational mission? It seems there's still a broad impulse toward international mission work, um, and most churches are involved in some kind of local mission as well. Um, what should we learn yeah, so I think a lot can be learned from studying the history of mission. Um, one thing I would say to continue our conversation on the previous question is that I would identify interfaith dialogue um, as part of Christian mission, and particularly for Christians in America today, um, that witnessing to our faith in a way that um, that we're standing in solidarity with um, people in religious minority communities who are being persecuted, that that's one really important facet of mission that's kind of been overlooked. People tend to divide into camps of mission versus interfaith dialogue. And I think people on both sides are missing something really important, um, at least within the internal Christian conversation. We're missing something very important if we're not taking 
into account um, both mission and being witnesses to Jesus Christ and the importance of deep interfaith dialogue for building relationships. Um, so that's one thing uh, related to the, the interreligious question. Um, but I think if you study mission history, you find that mission has always been about partnership. And much of what Western missionaries have claimed as their own accomplishments really wouldn't have been possible without the work of local Christians um, who actually understood themselves to be missionaries, even if they weren't called missionaries um, by, by the, the so-called Western missionaries. Um, and so in Syria, American Protestants really depended on Syrians. They had to be taught Arabic, and so Syrian partners did that. Um, they, there were very few of them, and so they had to have Syrian employees and Syrian pastors and evangelists who went out and build, built the church. And so without this reciprocal relationship, there wouldn't be a Protestant church in Syria because um, one side of the conversation can't do everything all alone. And so, um, and so I think that's really important. I also, I also see in Syrian Protestants who claim themselves to be missionaries, um, the reality that mission is something that all Christians participate in. And so there's not a sender and a receiver. Um, and those of us who can't go into foreign missions really could still view ourselves as being missionaries wherever we are, um, wherever a God has sent us. And so I think if we do that and we think about mission as living out our faith or witnessing and testifying to our faith in the world, um, it's really important to, to sort of rethink our attitude of doing mission and to reflect deeply on the ways that our own understandings of theology and practice may be bound up with our cultural values. I think that was often the problem for missionaries um, from the U.S. to Syria and other parts of the globe in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Mission became about making people be just like us culturally in our ways of dressing, our ways of speaking, um, our ways of worship. And Syrian Protestants pushed back and had a different way of um, adapting the Protestant faith to their own context. And so I think that mutual relationship is important. Um, but for anyone who wants to engage in mission, it really can't be about making other people um, be like us, but rather it has to be um, it has to be about living according to our faith. You've been listening to The Distillery. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. Our research and production team members are Garrett Mistowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. If you like what you're hearing, let us know by rating us on iTunes, or better yet, share an episode with a friend. The Distillery is a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more great resources for Christian theology and ministry on The Thread at the URL thethread.ptsem.edu. Once again, that's thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>